Hello and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We are recording as close to live, I think, as we ever have done uh, from Shane's Back Porch here in beautiful Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, the Smokemaster General, Mr. Trey Devon. This is Shane Reeves. Thank you for the intro. Um, you don't usually say this is Shane Reeves. I feel like I, I feel like I'm Johnny Carson. That should be coming out on the here, Shane. No, what what it was is I I had a joke lined up, and then as the words were coming out of my mouth, I couldn't get. You know, sometimes your tongue's out of position for the word yeah. you want to use. It's oh, a yeah. weird phenomenon, and that's what it was. So I decided to skip right over it and just and that's why it came out the way it did. Well, it's kind of odd. Recording the podcast at the time I usually listen to the podcast. Right. You know, this is Saturday morning. This is um, yard sales are done. You know, we've had both of us have had a chaotic week this week. And this just happened to be the day we finally got to record the podcast. Yeah, I've been out of town for the last two days. We've both had works. I mean, it just. Oh, yeah. It's just been insane. Yeah. And I, which is good. It's nice to to have stuff going on. I won't complain about getting having stuff going on. No, absolutely. But so this is usually the time that Glenda and I sit down, light a cigar, play a little poker, listen to the podcast. Right. So it feels odd to be doing the podcast. But in honor of that, usually nine times out of ten, the cigar I'm smoking when we do that is the Don Lino Africa. Right. And I had to drive all the way to Bell Mead yesterday to get a box of Don Lino Africa. Did you Africans. really? Didn't have them at Big Boys. Didn't have them at Crown. And we just happened to be up that way. And I just said, okay, forget it. We went and ate at Daltz. I gotcha. really like Daltz. You should have gone to Reserva. Um, or did I, you buy a box? I bought a box. Oh, okay. I don't think he has a box back. back yeah, so. I didn't know if he would have a box. And I was kind of racing traffic. Yeah. And I also was like, okay, I could stop at Reserva and take the chance, or I can go to Bill Mead where I gotcha. know they got it. Remind me, and I will show you on a map the back way to get between those two shops without having to deal with all that mess. Uh, oh, yeah. it's There's tons of little neighborhood roads back in there, and you can just zip in and out. It's great. Well, anyway, so I'm smoking the Don Lito Africa. You would think I would have the recipe for this cigar memorized like the Pledge of Allegiance by I this point. I would think so, yeah. And all, but the wrapper's an Ecuadorian Habano. It's a Nicaraguan cigar. Um, the binder's Cameroon, and the filler's Dominican and Nicaraguan. And it's still one of my and favorites. it's delicious, yeah. I haven't had one in a while, actually. Definitely smoked more of this cigar than any cigar ever. Yeah, that's that's your charter oak for me. Absolutely. Uh, so I am smoking a Hoya Nicaragua Antonio Connecticut, which according to CI is a medium full, and I just don't think I believe that. I think this is a perfect medium all the way through. It is a Ecuadorian Connecticut wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler. It is, you know, I don't often smoke a cigar at 10 o'clock. Uh, on a Saturday morning, I'm usually either still in bed or running and gunning. So th- I felt like I felt like a, a a Connecticut was the was fit for the occasion. You know, I love the morning cigar on mornings when I don't have to go to work. When I hate having a back end to life, I hate when I go somewhere and okay, I got a hard out at four, or I got a hard. I hate the hard out. The heart out drives me nuts because I want to be able to go and enjoy it till the moment's right. And if the moment is right at one cigar or the moment is right at six cigars, I don't want to be looking at my watch and have to leave. No, I 
I'm in general I'm the same way because I have such a pathological hatred for tardiness. You know, being late turns my stomach inside out. It just it there is very there there is you know 1% of all excuses are valid reasons for being late. And so for that reason I'm the same way like I'd rather not have okay I have to be done by this time so I can get to this place so I can get to this place. and my day today is full of that. Like that's that's just what my day looks like today and on a Saturday of all days. Yeah, see I'm I'll build good margins. I'm most times 15 minutes early to anything. Usually, if I arrive right on time for something, it's because I had a flat tire. Right. Rarely ever do I do I not build enough margin into my life. And I don't understand, you know, you listen to Corolla and you listen to all of them, and Corolla is the nick of time guy. He wants to show up two minutes before it's time to go. And I just think, why would you live life like that? That You're going to screw up more often than not. If you live your life the way he does, where he's always ready for everything, or at least so he claims, then I can understand that. But you and I like to have a chance to prepare. We like to have a time to turn off work brain and turn on podcast brain. Turn off podcast brain, turn on friend time brain. Like We like to have those transitions. But if you're someone like Corolla who just everything is always turned on, yeah, I can I can get that. You know, Kevin Ryder of the Kevin and Bean Show was the same way. He was the one that would roll into the studio as the intro to their radio show was playing. You know, and 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 he's in two halls of fames for radio. So I mean, obviously it works for him. But um, yeah, so w- I was in Louisiana uh, for work, and I had an on-site meeting with a vendor um, to do kind of a kind of a launch meeting of sorts and. To, to your point about being late, right? So I'm sitting there. I get there early. We're supposed to kick off about 8.30. And he calls me about 8.20. He's like, I don't think I'm in the right place. Where, like, where is this? Is this a building? And then so I'm like, and I don't know the area. It's only my second time there. And I said, okay, here's where you go. Here's where you go. So he, he's okay, I think. So I get him again. And he calls, he calls again. And he's like, is it this building? Is it that building? Do you guys have more than one office here? I was like, yeah, we own this whole block basically. Like, and so we eventually, I, I give him the address again. He figures it out and they, they, they roll up cause he was in Uber, uh, which probably explains it and walks through the door still two minutes early. And I, I just thought, I looked him right in the eye, I was like, I don't know if you're trying to impress me or not, but the fact that you couldn't find this place and you still were early, that's 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 a, that's out of my playbook right there. Yeah, that's the way it should be. I mean, you, you build margins into your life and you build, and margins are important, not just in your timing, margins are important in your finances, margins are important in your, you know, your personal life, just they're good margins make for a good life. Abs- absolutely. Um, just like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Any, anyway. Okay. We were not, we're not planning to talk about margins tonight, but in a future show, we'll do a whole night on margins. <laughs> it sounds like we could. <laughs> and all. But anyway, so got to play golf this week and all. And that, that's the one thing that really went right this week for me. And, all, and then I come in and I see this article in Cigar Journal. Cigar-friendly golf courses. Pronounce that name. Sobinye Korzolowski. <laughs> Any I'll questions? Allow it. Okay. 
<laughs> say it fast, say it confident. That's right. <laughs> and all. But basically, the article's not that um, impressive to me, other than the fact of, aren't all golf... Wasn't golf invented so we had something to do while we were smoking cigars? I feel like it was. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny. Yeah, I think... I feel like golf inherently is cigar-friendly, and golf courses by extension. Although I will say it was funny. I went... I had the opportunity a number of years ago to go to the PGA Championship in Atlanta and mm-hmm. whatever that beautiful golf course is. And as a spectator at a sporting event, I'm sitting here thinking, I didn't bring any cigars with me. I went with a whole bunch of my cigar buddies. And then I'm, and they're all like, don't you have a, t-? because it didn't cross my mind that at a professional sporting event, I'd be able, so even spectators at pro events are able to smoke cigars on the golf course. Uh, I think, yeah, I think golf is inherently just a, a smoker's paradise. Well, I think I'm perfectly within my rights. The first time I'm smoking a cigar on a golf course and somebody complains to beat them to death with a seven iron. I think you'll get more distance from a three wood. Well, yeah, but I want it to take longer. It's kind of like, okay. uh, you know, what's in the um, Robin Hood when he says, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. Right. And the guy said, why a spoon? But it's, I, if you use the three iron, yeah, you get less strokes. <laughs> but for, for an offense such as that, as somebody that's in the grand wide open and says you can't smoke, I think you should be able to use the three iron. That's how I feel about all smoking in outdoor facilities. That's it. I, it <laughs> that wasn't English. You know, we stopped allowing smoking in sporting arenas like Nissan Stadium and, and things like that. And on the one hand, you're sitting next to a two-year-old. I get it. Like, you can't control who you're sitting in the direct vicinity of. Give us a whole smoking section. What? Because what they've done instead now is they have created smoking sections where you have to leave the field, you know, visually leave the field of play. So right. you've now paid $12 for a beer, you know, $17 for a plate of nachos, and $600 for the ticket, and, well, for your whole family. And and now you have to go where you can't see the thing that you right. paid for when it's completely harmless to, to be outside, and and now you're under the little portico of the whole thing, so you've actually moved the smoking to a more indoor-like <laughs> area. Well, yeah, and not only that, you've concentrated it. Exactly. Now the kid that walks through that area is getting a, a concentrated dose of secondhand, thirdhand, fifthhand, whatever imaginary smoke they call it. He's getting a, a, a concentrated dose of that as opposed to it being spread out among the 70,000-seat stadium. Yeah, give it upper deck. I'll give you that so that it goes up and out. So upper deck, give us three sections that are smoking allowed. It's not smoking mandatory, although that would be fun. But <laughs> just, I, I, I don't... <laughs> Sorry, I, kid. <laughs> Can't go up here unless you light one up. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't see the harm in it if you're outside. Well, the other thing is... Why do people want to complain about that being outside? About not, you know, it's here's the, here's the the whole gist of it. Stupid people don't understand nuance. They understand, oh no, no smoking. Okay, no smoking. They don't understand nuance. No smoking in a restaurant while I'm trying to eat is far different from no smoking in a public park when we're three thousand foot away. Mm-hmm. Um, cruise ships, same thing. And I quit buying balcony seats on the cruise when they quit allowing smoking. Right. 
because and and it's stupid. Okay, everybody that wants to smoke, buy a balcony shot balcony on deck seven. Everybody that don't want to smoke, buy one on deck six. Right. Is that so, easy? It, it, it's that easy to solve, but dumb people don't understand nuance. Well, and I think and I think the imp- intelligent people who are in charge in, in situations like this know that the dumb people aren't going to understand the nuance, so they have to make blanket rules for everybody. Well, I think you should demand more of the dumb people. Well, yeah, but I think <laughs> no. I think human history has taught us that you can demand all you want, but it's not that the world's just going to create a better idiot. No, I think you call them an idiot. See, here's the problem: when people do something stupid, people are reluctant to tell them they're doing something stupid, and hence they never know they're doing something stupid. Right. And all I've said to people before: that's stupid. That's insane. Why would you do that? And I'll, and I think there needs to be more. I think when you're at the stadium and or the cruise ship, and some lady walks up and says, "The person that's smoking on the deck next to me bothers me," the cruise director should be perfectly qualified to say, "You're an idiot." The right. ship's traveling at 16 knots. His cigar is going against the wind. There's no way you should ever smell that cigar. Right. And if you do, it's just a smell. Yeah. It's not even like there's harm from it. Yeah, there are other spots on the boat you could sit. You don't have to sit in his lap while he smokes cigar. But anyway, we uh, uh, we are trailing off today. We're, yeah, we're way off the rails on that. It's it's Saturday. It's allowed. Yeah, and uh, but so this article about cigar friendly golf course. They talk about this great golf high end golf resort outside of Warsaw in Poland, which usually you don't hear going together high end in Warsaw, Poland. Um, <laughs> but they actually have a cigar lounge at the clubhouse. And I think I think that's kind of neat, you know. Uh, yes, all cigar, uh, all golf courses are are moderately cigar friendly. I'm sure there are some out there that aren't, um, but but the the kind of the enhancing the cigar experience, I think is 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 a different story altogether. Well, it's nice that after 18, you could go sit down in the clubhouse, have a beer, have a stick, and chat with the buddies. Yeah, especially like around here where. It's a little too warm after you've been on the oh, course man. for four hours to go sit on the porch. The last three at, three holes of the golf game I played Thursday were just miserable. Yeah, it was just exhausting because you were just you couldn't put enough hydration in. Right, and all. But anyway, okay, let's move forward. <laughs> Moving forward, um, let's talk about this DC court ruling this week briefly. In brief, because there really isn't much. This is an article that everybody's making a bigger deal out of than I think it deserves. Okay. So, D.C. court rules against cigar industry rejects appeal in FDA lawsuit. So, basically, the court said that they the appeal was, okay, the predicate dates they wanted to get rid of, the compliance dates they wanted to get rid of, and they said the FDA did not fail to provide instructions for filing pre-market review. I would I would like to argue that because wasn't that like a six hundred page document? Yeah, I feel like it was. Yeah, um, but this comes down to this DC court. The lawyer and I blame the lawyer for the cigar side. Never illustrated to this court the difference in a premium cigar and a manufactured cigar, a cigarette, a vape pen, and right. all that stuff. I think. I think that's what this comes from. I think that the biggest problem with the cigar premium cigar exemption, the biggest problem that we're going to have, people are going to have trouble voting for it because then there's going to be a vape exemption. Then right. they're going to want a cigarette. And I don't think big tobacco. 
I don't think Philip Morris wants a cigar exemption. Oh, I'm sure not because they they would like a little bit of help with the with the tax burden that they have. Yeah, I think was well, I think it's the tax burden. I think it's also just the fact that if it's easier to get premium cigars, people will smoke premium cigars. Right. And uh, as it becomes harder and harder to get cigarettes. Yeah, but as a company and as an industry which whose marketing thrives on I dare you to use our product, this will kill you, buy it, and they still make billions of dollars a year, I don't think they're really worried about market share. That's true. The, the, it's probably of the... And, okay, I don't subscribe to the evil rich people theory of life. This week, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have both got a lot of junk from everybody about how, oh, how dare they spend that much money to go into space for them. Bezos should pay an employee a little more, so so forth and so on. I don't get in on that stuff. To me, if you're a rich dude and you've made the money honestly, then pay, use it ever how you want. I, th- I think the argument is that... From from some people on this, and I'm kind of I'm kind of neutral on this whole thing. Um, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't spend it going into space. But I, you know, but by virtue of that fact, I would never have that kind of money. And we've talked about that on the show before. Uh, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you say as long as they made it honestly. And I think a lot of people would challenge the fact that due to the low wage, the poor working conditions, et cetera, et cetera, that that nullifies the just because they made it legally doesn't mean they made that money honestly. I'm not arguing one way or the other, and I don't want us to rabbit trail on that. But But I would say, like all things sort of political or ideological, you know, definitions can be a little uh, fluid, or or at least perceptions can be fluid, and so that's where you end up with these disagreements. Is you know, he made his money, he worked hard for it, he should be able to do what he wants. Yeah, but he did it by exploiting the worker class, so he should he should pay pay it forward and, and do something like both of those points are right. If if you can substantiate substantiate your point, and and I think and so that's where I think a lot of it comes from. Well, and this you know we're not going to get into this argument again because you and I have had will always have this debate. It's a fundamental philosophical difference. He ain't forcing nobody to work for him. It's like people that are waitresses and say we make two dollars an hour if we don't get tips. You ain't being forced to be a waitress. And all, but that's an argument you and I have always had. Yeah, and and we will we will forever disagree on that yeah. point. So. But the bigger point of that being, um, I don't. So when I say I feel like the cigarette industry is not good people, I'm not saying that because because I'm by far the most let business be business of anybody. But I, I'm kind of if the, the cigar industry cigarette industry was shut down. Really wouldn't bother me at all. I really, I would not, I cannot find a fundamental reason in my soul to say some politician coming in and saying, okay, I'm shutting down the cigarette cigarette industry in North Carolina. Um, I can't find a fundamental reason to be against that. I, I can, um, which is, which is simply that when you look at the economy of North Carolina in this case and how much of their economy is tied up into tobacco it's you know these are generations of families that have invested their time their money their land into growing this particular crop and so to come out and say nope we're shutting you down 
Um, I don't know how much you know about the whole factory farming uh, mm-hmm. concept in this country, and it's something that I imagine we probably disagree on as well. But essentially, like Tyson Farms, Purdue, if we're looking at, at chicken, for example, they in, – in order to provide – which they, they buy up nearly all of the commercially raised chicken in this country. So unless you get on contract with one of those two companies, you really can't sell any poultry – raised for food and but in order to get that contract you have to have certain conditions in your farming which most people can't afford especially with the to build the facilities up to those standards so they loan the money so purdue loans the money to the farmers and then every couple of years they intentionally change the requirements forcing these people to never be able to pay off the loans and and essentially creating a scenario of indentured servitude and so and so i'm very much against the you know the way that those companies operate their businesses but if you take away tobacco farming from these families that have been doing it for hundreds of years they really have all they know is farming and the only outlet they would have at that point to go to continue to do so would be forcing them into this sort of arena. Yeah, they just grow something else. Yeah, but the, I mean, but you know, here's the thing: you've got to add, so philosophically. So to to peel back the layer, the biggest deal in my real estate career fell through mm-hmm. yesterday. As a matter of fact, it was yesterday on my way home. The biggest deal from my real estate career fell through. What nothing I did. Really wasn't nothing anybody did. The deal, we explored it as far as we could, and it just didn't work. Right. And all. And that's, I'm not bummed about that. I'm excited because God's never took nothing out of my life that he didn't put something better in its place. Right. And if he takes something that big out of my life, I can't wait to see what he's got planned to get in place of that. Uh That's just exciting to me. And also, philosophically... You can say poor, poor tobacco farmers, or philosophically, you can say now that land's freed up for them to do something else. Yeah, but I guess my point is the fact that that everything everything else is tied up. Just as it, it's not it's not like it gives them freedom. If anything, it further it further ties their hands. Now they can get freedom. This is America. You can have freedom if you want it. <laughs> That's such horse chips. Yes, this is America. Is you such can, horse chips. I can do anything. I want in this country. Yeah. Do you want to drink and drive? Do you want to drive without a seatbelt? I absolutely. If I'm willing to pay the price, I can do it. And yeah. I'll, but, I mean, when, but, but when it comes the, to keep, but when it comes to putting food on the table for your family, there are certain prices that are unable to be paid, and the the farming infrastructure with the corn subsidies, the cotton subsidies, and things like that have essentially stacked the. Uh, stacked the the deck in favor of a few rather than the the totality of the people doing the work. But every week there's a farmer's market where somebody's selling beef they've raised, raised on their own. My family has been in farming in Wayne County for five generations and never had to do business with Tyson, never had to do business with that, always had everything they wanted. So I can show clearly that it can be done. I'm not I'm not denying that it can be done. I'm denying that if you take the entirety of the tobacco crop and growers in an entire state like North Carolina, which really thrives on that, then you then yes, a couple of them will survive by doing it 
you know, kind of the the independent farming route. Sure, they'll but find there's a new only, way. But there's only so much room in that in that market. There's only so much market share to go around. Well, and the and so I understand the nuance of what you're saying. You can't just say, okay, big tobacco is evil. We're outlawing cigarettes. I understand the nuance of what you're saying there. I understand that, but I also understand that it's fear of pain cannot be a reason you don't do something because pain is part of change. There is no change without pain. True, but I, you know, you and I talk about you know social changes and things like that quite often as well, and and I won't go too much into it because again, it's one of the things that you and I categorically disagree on. But it's the same thing. I think, I think just because something can never be perfect shouldn't mean we shouldn't strive for better. And you know, I know a lot of you know you'll never create a healthcare system that that is perfect for everybody. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to improve the one we have. You'll never create an education system that perfectly benefits everybody equally. But that doesn't mean that we should just keep the status quo. You know, and then you know, ad infinitum, it, it goes on. You know, any industry, any topic, you can you can go that way. So, to your point, yes. Um, but I don't think outlawing tobacco growing is a step in the right direction. Well, and I'm not proposing outlawing no, tobacco no, no. growing. I'm just saying if the cigar cigarette industry got shut down, I cannot see a good reason to keep the cigarette industry running. No, I I get that. I can I can see a good. I think the I, I think the, the the status quo far outweighs the the benefits of getting rid of it altogether are there some changes we could make that would improve both scenarios absolutely well and i think it's a and also i think there are a certain number of problems in life that solve themselves i mean how many kids do you see smoking anymore almost never yeah almost you know when we, you think about it if you can actually you can draw a a socioeconomic line and it's and it's unfortunate but it's the you know it's the same group of people that are less likely to receive higher education, uh, more likely to be obese, also more likely to be smokers. It's a it's a socioeconomic thing. Yeah, so it's a decision. Mm, <laughs> I know I had to throw that in you, there. Yeah, yeah, uh, ab- absolutely not, absolutely not. I had to, I had to throw that, but it's it's a fundamental philosophical difference. You know, it, it is. It is. It's, it, and it really does come down to that, and that's okay. I can respect your viewpoint, even if I don't agree with it. Right. And uh, and that that to me is the heart of what we should be able to do. But anyway, okay, back to this article to wrap it up, put a bow on it before we go to break. Um, I think this ruling is not as big a deal as all of the. Uh, cigar rags have made it out to be. I think this is more about um, a cigar industry not doing a good job of explaining what premium cigars are to the um, judges in this or the judges having a cognitive bias to not wanting to deal with the cigar industry. Right. And I think the other thing that's important is that this is not the only case that is currently in the appellate court. And, and this is really not the important one either. Mm-hmm. You know, the other case is the one that actually challenges the, the premium cigar exemption for regulation. So that's the one that we really want to keep our eye on. All this one says is that the FDA, when they made their ruling or when they, when they came out with their – that they didn't do anything wrong. And it's because – and I found this really interesting and I want to hit it before we move on. One of the things they were challenging was the 2007 predicate date for cigars, which basically means that a predicate tobacco product is one that was on the market as of February 15th, 2007, therefore grandfathered in. Um, I And so 
it, the that date, and this is what is so wrong with our court system and our legal system, uh, legislative system, I think. The 2007 predicate date still stands as the FDA cannot amend the terms set by the Tobacco Control Act. So a, a, a piece of legislation was passed independent of this, and therefore one can't rule against the other. And it basically makes it unchallengeable. And I find that so disgusting. Well, you shouldn't be able to predate a a legislation. You know, this didn't go into effect until 2013. And they're saying, oh, yeah, for the last seven years, you've been. Yeah, I I find it abhorrent that you could that you can legislate that way. Yeah. And it it makes it a more complex issue. And it's just it's and it is a complex issue. I mean, there's no denying that. Cigars, cigarettes, tobacco products is a complex issue. Yeah. And I'll, but okay, let's step away for a break. When we come back, we got to argue the difference in sauce and gravy. All right, we'll do it. That and more after this. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man who's cooking so bad his flies all pitched in and fixed the screen door, Mr. Trey Dedman. I I, I take great <laughs> exception to that. Do you take umbrage or exception? Which is both it? umbrage. I, I, I was hoping you would say umbrage. Umbrage is really a more Trey word than exception. It, it really is, but <laughs> it's Saturday. That part of my brain is turned off. Well, it's an old Gary Mule Deer joke. And I'll, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Um, Gary Mule Deer, an old Southern comedian, he's hilarious. He was on the Ray Stevens Cabaret show the other day, and he told that joke. And I said, yeah, I've got to use that one and give Trey credit for that. And I'll, because he's, he's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and I'll, but... I am or Mule Deer is? Mule, Mule Deer's hilarious. You, you've got your moments. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> and I'll, so moving forward, Saucy New Diesel heading to retailers. This is from Aficionado. And Diesel is making the Sunday gravy. So on the surface, when I seen this, I said, man, Diesel is working hard in marketing. And I would like to see them working a little harder in making good cigars. Right. And I'll, but they won me over. And I'll, I will get, so as much, um, as much grief as I give cigar journalists, I'm giving this guy full credit. And okay. I'll, uh, Mr. Gregory Motala. And I'll, I give him full credit for writing a good article. I understand your position a little bit more now. I just read a paragraph that I had passed over the first time I read this article. And I'll, so let's talk about the cigar for just a second so that we don't get to the end of this conversation and realize we haven't spoken about the cigar. So this is a collaboration between A.J. Fernandez and Forge Cigar. It's, so you know I'm in. Yeah. It's a new cigar. Um they're going to be available August 12 in packs of 10 for about five bucks a stick. That's a pretty darn good price. It is. And uh, they don't really have the recipe on here. Oh, wait, there it is. And uh, Nicaragua by <laughs> Fernandez, Ecuadorian Habano wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, and Nicaraguan filler. Yeah. From Esteli and Jalapa. Um, respectively. Respectively. And, um, yeah, I'm in. I think it's going to be a good stick. I do, too. I and, mean, uh, it, if it... So far, I've liked everything Forge has brought to market, and I'm all. And as you know, I like everything that comes out of the AJ Fernandez factory. So, well, I, coincidentally, 
my wife bought the most expensive box of cigars she's ever bought in her life yesterday. Yeah. And uh, we were up at Bellmead. For, do you mean for herself? Because she for bought herself. you because you she bought you a box of Goldies. Yeah, yeah, for herself, <laughs> for her uh, for her cigars. Co- coincidentally, you're smoking one of her cigars right now. I had a feeling I might be, <laughs> and all, but um, I've defended her position on cigars in your house enough that I figure she's probably okay. She's with She's probably good. She's pretty good with with sharing. <laughs> she's she's pretty good at that. And I'll um, the spirit of the lady that came out. Yeah. It's a limited edition. A little pricey for that stick. But that is a good stick, and that Rosado wrapper's sweet, and she really, really likes that cigar. And we were there, and they had a box of Spirit of the Lady. And she looked at the price, she's like, I don't know. And I said, well, honey, here's the deal. You're never going to have the chance to buy that box of cigars again because that was a limited release. Everybody has pretty much sold out of them. You're probably not ever going to get the chance to buy that box of cigars again. So if you want it, buy it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And all, and she did. So just side note to Forged. And all, but the first line in this article is what we're going to argue about or discuss. I don't even know what we're going to argue about this. I don't think we are. Do you call it sauce or do you call it gravy? So, and I, initially you were... You were calling gravy the more pretentious option, and I thought that was so strange until I read this. Um, where did it go? Yeah, Sunday Gravy is a single-size tour of the measure 6x54. In keeping with the cigar's saucy theme, it goes by the name San Marzano, referencing the prized tomatoes grown in Italy's San Marzano region. So it's – and and uh, brand manager Justin Andrews uh, likens cigar production to his mother's – method of simmering fine perfect sunday sauce so they're talking about tomato sauce right they're talking about tomato based sauce you know most of us is only exposure to the use of the word gravy instead of sauce was through the hbo show sopranos right and and so that's i think you know when you say do you call it sauce or do you call it gravy i think sauce and gravy are two different things but i but i you know by virtue of the fact that we are two good southern gentlemen we when you say gravy, there are probably three things that enter your mind. There's white biscuit gravy, you know, milk gravy. There's turkey gravy or brown gravy, mm-hmm. and there's chocolate gravy. Well, and there's also sawmill gravy made with coffee. That would be the the fourth category of gravy. But sawmill gravy and sausage gravy are kind of the same thing. Well, now they're slightly different recipes, but in terms of evoking an image in your mind. You're 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 looking at three basic categories of gravy. Yes, for for a good Southern gentleman or woman. Um, well, and it's hard, and I guarantee you, eighty six percent of our listeners have never heard of chocolate gravy. Right, I hadn't until you told me about it. Yeah, and um, and I still have never had it. I've introduced a great number of people to chocolate gravy, and they're like, "Where's this been my whole life?" Right. And all chocolate gravy is made with flour, and instead of grease, you use Hershey's cocoa. And you make chocolate gravy, and you get great big fluffy cat head biscuits, and you put a slab of butter on them, and you pour that hot chocolate gravy over it, and it's just as close to heaven as you're going to get sitting here yeah, on I, earth. I, I still, I still need to to make it. The problem is, I'm the only one that eats gravy in my house, and this is this is what I think is so funny because we're just reading the first line in this article. Do you call it sauce or do you call it gravy? Well, in my house, regard regardless of what type of sauce or gravy it is. We call it sauce, and I'll tell you why. 
So my my wife, wonderful woman, was born and raised in Georgia. You know, the just you know, silk tongue of of, of southern hospitality is is what that kind of evokes Gravy for a lot Central. of people. Gravy Central, like you know, heart of you know the, the southern culture, sort of. Her parents and all of their family going back are from Pennsylvania, and so she is not a southerner, despite having spent her whole life down here, and hates gravy. So I learned pretty early on that when I'm cooking, you know, dinner or something like that and and want to, you know, jazz it up or add something a little bit to it, I don't make gravy. I make a pan sauce. Right. Even though they're the exact same thing. And she knows she's not going to learn anything new by hearing it on the show. But that's but in my house, we call it a sauce because she likes sauce, hates gravy. Yeah, it's, we're nomenclature mm-hmm. and all, but also you can blur the lines between sauce and gravy. You know, an Alfredo sauce. So I have I have a definition. Here's how I categorize them. A gravy is made from, and you're going to give me such hell for this, fawn, which is the leftover bits in the bottom of the pan after you cook the meat. So if like you sear a, a pan sear a steak and then you like scrape the leavings, a gravy is made with the left it, the left behind pieces, the fawn from whatever the rest of the meal is. Whereas a sauce is made in earnest, made with, independently with of virgin that. ingredients. So um, you know, one of my mother's great dishes is quail gravy. We'll take quail, you parboil them. Then you fry them in a pan, and then you take the leavings, and you put your milk to it, and your flour, and you make a quail gravy. Mm-hmm. Now, your wife wouldn't eat quail gravy, but she might eat quail sauce. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I can understand the the difference there, but here's my opinion. If you are calling red sauce gravy, and somebody within three generations of your family did not off, get off the boat from Italy, you're just pretentious. Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with that. And it was it was so funny when we were talking about this before the show, and you kept mentioned like you mentioned that line exactly, and I hadn't read the fact that they this was referencing red sauce. I'm like going, I'm, I'm going, who calls red sauce gravy? Like, what does being Italian have to do with gravy? And <laughs> because it's a nomenclature difference. But you never watch The Sopranos. That's true. And uh, if you'd watch The Sopranos, Sunday dinner was about gravy, and I think they even referenced it in Goodfellas. And all uh, that it, that they called it gravy rather than sauce. I'm I'm sure I haven't I haven't watched Goodfellas in a while. I need to. I've been going through old mob movies lately. I watched Casino a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. I watched Godfather one and two last week, and. Um, yeah, I think Goodfellas is next. Well, Goodfellas, for me, is the same category as Full Metal Jacket. It's a good half a movie. Yes. You know, Full Metal Jacket, I watch it, and I always stop when, at the end, the when boot camp is over. See, I'm going to get a lot of grief for this, but that's kind of how I feel about The Godfather. Once, once Michael shoots the cops, yeah. that's... That's the end of the first act. Like that's that's it. Once he goes to Sicily, like yeah. it's it's a different movie after that. Yeah, I think there, there's some movies like that. And Goodfellas, you know, when they shoot Joe Pesci, Goodfellas is over for me. Mm-hmm. When Joe Pesci dies, that's when I turn Goodfellas off because I've watched all the Goodfellas that I want to watch. Right. And all, and that's just it's it's interesting. We can talk about half of movies in a future show because there's probably a long list of movies that are half of them are amazing, and the other half's like okay, we got to fill another hour. Right. But anyway, 
so the diesel, um, I'm probably gonna smoke it. Yeah, I, I was I was opposed to Sunday gravy at first and all, but now I'm on board. And all they they have won me over through nomenclature aside. They they have won me over. So okay, one of my favorite websites, and we haven't mentioned art of manliness in a while. No, it's true. And all, and this is by Brett and Kate McKay. How to avoid conversational narcissism. So, this is so pertinent to cigar shop conversation. There's nobody worse in the worse in the cigar shop than the conversational narcissist. And all the guy that everything you know, and they use the perfect example, and all of of how to illustrate what conversational narcissism is. James, I'm thinking of buying a new car. Rob, oh yeah, what models have you looked at? That's how it should go. Or, James, I'm thinking of buying a new car. Rob, oh yeah, I'm thinking about a new car too. That's conversational narcissism. Instead of just talking to the person about the subject they brought up and finding out what models and all that, you you try to bend the conversation back to you. Yeah, and I think think it's interesting because I was talking about this with somebody recently, and I don't remember exactly the context for how we got on the subject, but I think a lot of it comes down to... You know, we we went from a in just the last thirty years we've gone from you know ADD and people who are lit squirrely to fully recognizing that that there's a you know neurodivergent spectrum of behavior. You know, so it's not just you know autism and Aspergers anymore. It's just it's a spectrum. Some people are you know on the spectrum. Some people aren't, and and everyone's at different levels. And I think for people that are kind of on that high functioning side of that spectrum, maybe never diagnosed, uh, which I think is a lot more of us than maybe we'd like to realize or think about. I think you learn to cope. By growing up and thinking, okay, I want to show this person that I'm engaging with them, so I'm going to relate an anecdote or a piece of my life back to the story with them to to create a dialogue. And I think I think the intentions are good most of the time. You absolutely have some narcissists out there that are just trying to talk about themselves as opposed to anything else. But I, wa- I wonder how much of this comes from just someone trying so hard to be liked and included that they're trying to keep the conversation going by relating to the other person. Yeah, there's so there's narcissism with malicious intent. Mm-hmm. I want it to be all about me, all about me, all about me. And then there's narcissism kind of indirect and all where they're not necessarily trying to be narcissistic, but it comes off that way. There are two people in our cigar shop of choice who are guilty of conversational narcissism in nearly every interaction. And you probably know that I'm sure the two people that I'm thinking of came to your mind as well. One of them does it intentionally Mm -hmm. and the other does it because they're trying to fit in. Right. They're trying too hard. They're trying too hard. And uh, yeah, I know, I know exactly the two people you're talking about. And then, and there's people, I don't ever want to be the conversational narcissist and I'll, and I always, and I always try to structure, you know, It's my perfect example is how do you ask a question? Right. So when I ask a question, I have a very definitive process. I ask the question first. Very first and foremost, this comes from years of listening to talk radio shows. First thing I do is ask the question. Then 
I'll tell people, okay, this is why I'm asking the question, and I will provide context in a brief, 25 words or less. In brief, the context of what has brought me to ask this question. Then I am ready to receive the best answer from the person that I have presented to. Because when you ask a question, you know, it's the sauce and gravy conversation we just had. The question being, do you call it sauce or do you call it gravy? And then you have to qualify exactly how that works. See, I think I think it is better structured the other way around by virtue of the fact that I read that, you know, do you call it sauce or call it gravy? And, and you're going off about red sauce without the context. And I'm, I've already made up my mind. Whereas providing the context before the question for me, I think it's... It's the difference between the roller coaster and the drag car. You know, the roller coaster, you know, you get to feel the the up the big hill to start. So you've got you're building that context, you're building that experience, and you know you're leading to something, as opposed to the drag racer, which is just boom, you know, six hundred miles an hour at from zero to 60 in like half a second. Well, so I'm known as the guy that brings up the philosophical debate quite often at the cigar shop. And I can tell you when it comes to engaging people in a philosophical debate, I've had far more success with question first than story first. Because at story first, they chase rabbits. They start forming their opinions before they know the direction you're headed. Um, I've always had far greater success when I'm going to have a philosophical conversation stating, philosophically, here's the conversation I want to have. Here's what led me to do that. Then I have the other way around. My success rate's much higher. I think it depends. I, I think this is one of those things where our two personalities dictate this difference by virtue of the fact that you're far more likely to start a conversation than I am, but I am more likely to steer a conversation than you are. Well, and I'm also, um, and I'm saying this nicely. Um, <laughs> you, you always know it's going to be good when you preface the statement yeah. that way. I kind of command a different level of, um, of attention with the way I bring forth these conversations. And it, is, and it, it probably is some conversational narcissism on my part. I, I think there's a certain part of you that likes to be the Labrador. Oh, always. Yeah. And so, it, and it, it is, it's a categorical difference in the way that we walk through life by virtue of the fact that I'm an observer first and a participant second. You're the other way around. Yeah, I'm there always are, going to actively participate. There are pros and cons to both. You know, I like to I like to plan. I like to know the information. I like to build my, the environment in my head before, you know, it's the same reason. Like, we could go to, to a pool party and just, you know, a bunch of friends hanging around. Everyone's just kind of barbecuing in the pool. You're the guy who's going to just, no one's in the pool. Everyone's kind of shy. You're just going to take a run and leap off the diving board and, and cannonball and splash all the participants i'm gonna dip my toe in the water first yeah yeah it's it's a philosophical difference and all and it's i i am more prone to conversational narcissism my style of talking is than yours so it's interesting you say that because i think we are prone to the same level of conversational narcissism but for different reasons and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier you like 
to engage with people in such a way that you that you drive the conversation like you said here's here's where i want to go with this conversation and then provide context on the back end whereas mine is much more of that i want to show this person that i'm relating to them I did this last night, and I'm still feeling a little guilty. And I, I, I feel like I owe the person an apology, even though I know that they didn't perceive it this way. But it's just a virtue by virtue of how I'm wired. Is yeah, we were talking about things, and I feel like I steamrolled the conversation because trying to keep the conversation going, but in doing so, basically walking past the you know it's it's listening to hear versus listening to respond. Well, and there's also a level. You know, one of the phrases that everybody's heard me use a dozen times is, do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? Right. And I think a lot of time your conversational narcissist wants to be perceived that they're right more than they actually want the answer to their question. I don't ever want to ask a question and then be fishing for a response that I'm looking for. Right. And I'll, But there's a lot of people, especially in cigar shop conversation, that kind of, and most of the time they are the 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 narcissist that we're talking about. They want to ask a question because they want to get the answer they want because in their mind that makes them appear more intelligent. It, well, and it validates their position, you know. Especially cigar shops, I would say by and large, you know, m- more than most, uh, tend to be places of political discussion. And I think for a lot of people, if you if you phrase it in a certain way and if you drive and you formulate the question in such a way where you get the response that you want, it creates a, a validation of that position. And I will say, you know, my way of communicating is far more likely to be abused in that way than yours. You know, if you ask a question, I'm immediately going to have a gut reaction and then you provide the context and that may or may not change. Whereas I'm going to kind of provide the context and it's going to make, you know, it's going to add a little bit of, you know, steering to that. And it could, it could be more likely to influence the decision. So I want to share a little thought exercise that I used to use when I was in sales. And I think this is like if no if any of our listeners have never tried this, I think it's brilliant. It's called the unreasonable request. And this is how we would teach new salespeople to kind of get out of their comfort zone. And the idea behind it is that you ask somebody for something, you make a request of somebody that you expect the answer to be no. Now, the rules behind this are it has to be something they're capable of. So I couldn't ask you for a million dollars, for example. Um, If they say yes, you have to accept that. So don't ask for something and, and then turn mad that you got it and then turn them down when they offer to do what you ask. Um, The third is you can provide no context. There's no emotional manipulation allowed. So I can't say, hey, I know it's really early, but, you know, my wife is in Georgia and I really need to get to the airport tomorrow. Would you mind? No. We drive me to the airport tomorrow. And it's it's a phenomenal way to get outside of yourself, but also to learn that that technique of ask for what you want. If more context is needed, be prepared to provide it, but be willing to accept things at face value. And it's, it's a, it's brilliant. Even if you're not in sales, even if it's just for whatever, it's, it's a great thought exercise. 
Well, and, you know, my whole plan pitch that I use to get sell people to get me to draw their house plan is predicated on how quickly can I trans- transition myself from salesman to trusted advisor. Right. And uh, my whole sales pitch is tailored to that. And one of the most powerful re- things you can ask of that is why. You know, a lot of times when people will say, okay, I got to have a basement. Why? And and then they sit there stunned for a moment because they're used to people just saying, you know, I had a couple in my office this week. And they said, oh, we got to have a basement. And I said, okay, is your lot flat or sloped? Oh, it's flat as a pancake. Well, basements are not great on flat lots. What are you hoping to accomplish with your basement? And, I, well, we want guest rooms. We want this. We want that. We want the other. And it's like, well, okay. And for this customer, it actually turned out to be a far better solution for them to build a pool house right. than to build a basement. Right. And I'll, because what they were wanting to do, the the land, and that's part of becoming that trusted advisor. And afterwards, I said, hey, yeah, we we think your idea about the pool house is brilliant. Yeah. And I'll, it's so much better than having the basement because the pool house lets us do this, 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 and this, you know. And you make that transition from salesman to advisor. Yeah, we, we had a, a situation like that at work recently as well where it was, it was you know, talking to a vendor. Can your product do X? Well, yeah, I'm sure we could do that, but we'd have to get professional services involved. We'd have to, you know, kind of scope out maybe a future feature request, that sort of thing. And then it was one of those, hang on a second. Here's, so that's the solution to a problem that we've come up with. Here's the problem. Give me your solution. And then once we framed it in that way, it was, oh, if that's what you're trying to accomplish, we can do that this way. This is kind of our bread and butter, actually. Let's show you how to do it. And it really, so it, you know, being willing to listen and being willing to understand that, you know, like you said, that why behind it is so important. I am a huge proponent of understanding the why. I think, I I think a, a yes or no question without the why behind it is useless. Yeah, you most have, of the time. Yeah, you have to you have to build it in such a way as that the person thinks it's their ideal. And I'll, you know, there we always talk about there's such a fine line between leadership and manipulation. Right. And I think you have to really and to be a good effective salesman, you have to tread that line. You do. You have to tread the line between uh, you know, and you also have to take your desires out of it. And you know, my people the other day if they'd said, "Nope, we absolutely want a basement." I'd absolutely drew them a basement. Right. But I'm more interested in providing them the benefit of my experience. Because the same thing I tell everybody when they ask me about my price. Hey, if you want somebody to draw your plan, you can find somebody cheaper than me. Absolutely. You're paying me for my professional knowledge. You're not paying me just to draw a plan. And I'll, if, you're, if you're not interested in my professional knowledge and you just want somebody to draw the plan, go find somebody else because they'll be cheaper than I will. Right. You know, if you're not, you know, people not being teachable is the customers I fire. Right. And uh, whether it's plans, whether it's real estate, whether it's whatever I'm doing, if they're not teachable, then I'm going to fire them. It just makes life easier. There's no yeah. point. And uh, because I'm not happy putting out a subpar product because it's what they want. Right. And uh, that leaves a, a hole in my, in my soul. I need to add something to them or else because I I charge a premium for my services and I want to charge a premium for my services. I don't understand the 
you know, there's a whole bunch of these low service real estate firms out there. Right. Five hundred dollars and we'll list your house. Whatever you want to list it for, wherever you want to list it, whatever you want to do, five hundred dollars, we'll do it. Well, they're doing a tremendous disservice to their clientele. Well, it's you know, it's not only that they're doing a disservice to their profession. We and I see this all the time in various industries. You know, the the ten dollar oil change. And they're, you know, it's like okay, you're you're planning to do enough that you can get by on low margins when you do something like that, but you diminish the value of what everybody else in that pro- profession has done because now, the the thought is, well, why am I paying somebody else more to do the same thing if you can do it for that? You know, it's like, um, it's like real estate we talk about all the time that. A lot of people don't understand why realtors make the money they do, and it's because it's there's this perception that they get that they get paid thousands of dollars to just post a listing and show up at the closing date. You know, and obviously there's more to it than that. But when you have somebody come out and say, "I'll do it for a flat fee of five hundred dollars," then it reinforces that preconceived notion that there's a lot of money being thrown around for no reason. And it diminishes the value of the service for for everyone involved. Well, and as my real estate journey has has come on strong lately, and I've been doing more and more of the real estate stuff in my life, um, I've come to the conclusion being a realtor is a lot like being a boxer. You know, you don't pay a boxer seventy nine ninety five for his pay per view for the three minutes and forty eight seconds it takes him to knock the other guy out. You're paying him for the six months that it took him to get to that point. The training, the effort he put into it, the time he's put into it, the you know the training sessions, the coaching, the all the things that has led him to be able to go out there and do the fight. If you only paid boxers for the ten rounds they fight for eighty minutes, how terrible would a boxing match be if some right. guy, some guy that had never worked out, walked out there and strapped on a set of gloves and started trying to punch each punch you out? It's going to be a terrible fight. I, I there's part of me that wants to see that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's part of me that wants to do that. I saw something. <laughs> yeah, I saw something interesting online last week, and it was like, you know, with the Olympics coming up, talking about how I think for context they should get somebody who's never done the sport before or at least like very average maybe they did pole vaulting in high school but haven't done it in 20 years let's get them out there and do it first just so we have context for how impressive these people are it's why your best broadcasters used to play the game right it's why you know because they provide that context right it's why troy aikman is a good broadcaster because he understands what's going on because he's been there yeah, you because know, I'm I'm sitting in bed drinking my coffee and and watching this morning I was watching the uh, I think ten meter archery mixed team and you know of course pinnacle of their athletic you know career they're at the Olympics you know how much opportunity does an archer get to show off they're at the Olympics and they're you know ten meters thirty feet that's a lot longer than you think it is and you know and they get an eight and I'm going ugh. Well, you suck. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's why I hate the subjective Olympic events. Mm-hmm. You know, for crying out loud, break dancing is an Olympic event. How stupid is that? Is it? No, yes. it's not. Want to bet? Not particularly. <laughs> is, it, is it part of the rhythmic gymnastics? Is it? Nope. There is actually break dancing in the Olympics. This is the first year. 
I didn't. I didn't see that when they were running through all of the the pictograms yesterday. But you know, it, it, and it's very subjective. And rhythmic gymnastics is very subjective. Yeah. And so much of gymnastics that, is very subjective. Yeah, I don't like the subjective events. I like the hard and fast. Did you hit the target or not? Event or did you jump the highest? Did you jump the farthest? Did you run the fastest? Swim whatever the fastest. I, I agree with you. I think you know because there there have been so many controversies. You know, throughout Olympic history about judges being on the take or whatever. And I think, yeah, anything we can do, you know, the Olympics should be the best people from all the countries in the world competing on a level playing field to determine who's the best. And I think it, I don't think it should be up to the interpretation of the French judge who just happens to hate Lithuania. Yeah. And, you know, the break. I don't hate breakdancing. If you like breakdancing, by all means, breakdance. But I don't think it is an Olympic caliber event because I don't think it can be judged in a non-subjective manner. So I'm, I'm curious then because, you know, Olympics are the pinnacle of sport, or at least they're supposed to be. So would you – so rhythmic gymnastics. For oh, Let's go to breakdancing. I don't know if you've ever tried – breakdancing, it requires a tremendous level of fitness to be able to do such compared with, say, uh, darts. Now, darts requires less fitness, but it is more objective in the way it's scored. So would you, so as we're talking about sporting prowess, would you trade breakdancing for darts just by virtue of the way it's measured? Absolutely. Okay. In a heartbeat, and all because I I, be, I believe the more subjective the judging, the less validity the competition has, and all. And I think that's a big part of it. But all right, well let's wrap it up so that you can get this thing put out there for everybody to listen to. All righty, let's do it. And all, how do they get a hold of us? You can reach us at facebook.com slash the cigarcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at the cigarcast, and email info at the cigarcast.com. Well, thank you everybody for listening this week, and until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Mm-hmm.